Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, author Karen Kingsbury is back with another novel featuring characters from the Baxter family, two new characters who lost family members in the Oklahoma City bombing who met at the memorial site or present within the book, which includes a hope-laden attempt to reunite them. Then you'll be hearing from author Charles Martin. He received last year's Christie Award for Book of the Year at a ceremony co-hosted by Karen. His latest book deals with the reuniting of central characters who experience brokenness and the hope of redemption. Also, you'll meet author and speaker Janet McHenry, who explores subject matter relative to the prayer life of Jesus, including what he prayed and how his example can inspire us today. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Kristen Welch of Mercy House Global, who discusses the concept of building a missions-minded family, teaching children to serve others and regard them as greater than themselves. Also from First Liberty Institute, it's attorney Michael Berry on the case of a high school student who was told by school officials that religious content had to be omitted from his graduation speech. Plus, Al Parada of the website The Stream has co-written a book offering some simple principles regarding immigration. In our conversation, he integrated the Christian-related concept of welcoming. Finally, businessman and consultant Bob Hassan offering a look at honor and how it can be integrated into how one approaches his or her work. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Karen Kingsbury is a best-selling author and speaker, and in a recent conversation with me, she discussed her latest novel entitled To the Moon and Back, including characters from the Baxter family and the attempt by one of them to reunite two people who had met at the Oklahoma City Memorial, having lost loved ones in the tragedy. Here now from our conversation is Karen Kingsbury. There's a memorial in Oklahoma City, and 10 years ago, I was there, and I saw how profoundly impactful that memorial really was. I wasn't personally touched by the bombing, but we all were who were, you know, able to remember it. And so I saw a piece of chain link fence that's set up as part of the memorial, and there was a hat on the fence, and it said, Barbie was written on it, it said, I survived this, but I can't survive losing you. And I I, Mm. don't have any idea who that was written to or what the purpose was, but I do know it started an idea for a story in my heart, and it's been 10 years, and now I'm finally writing that story. It's, um, <clears throat> it's a love story between Brady and Jenna, two kids who, when they were five years old, they lost both of their parents, all of their parents, um, in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so now, uh, then when they were 16 years old, they met at the memorial and had an unforgettable day, this deep connection that they couldn't forget. And then now it's 10 years later and they can't find each other. He's now a firefighter every year on the anniversary. He goes to the memorial and he leaves a letter for Jenna. And uh, to this time, Ashley Baxter Blake is there as well. She's there with her family on a spring break trip. Her niece, Amy, wants to see the survivor tree, which is part of the memorial. And she's standing there. She sees Brady put this letter in the fence. And when he leaves, she goes over to it, just curious the way Ashley would be takes it out of the fence, takes a photo of it, and then wraps it back up, puts it back in the fence, and she finds out that he's looking for this girl, this Jenna, and she decides she's going to be the one to help him. What are some of the lessons that people can take away by interfacing with this book? Well, I think it puts them right in the middle of whatever they're going through or whatever they've gone through in the sense that they can really relate to where Brady's at, the anger, the hurt, the loss that he still feels. Every year, you know, when he goes, he doesn't just leave a letter for Jenna. He goes 
uh, in my book, To the Moon and Back, straight to the to the chair that said every everyone who died, a chair was put up in their honor. It's made of bronze and it's got their name and he leaves a flower for his mom. I mean, it, he can still remember how she would read to him and she would tell she would read him a book and then she would say, I love you, Brady, to the moon and back. So that's where the title comes from, to the moon and back. And so he's still very much going through that. And I think as readers go through this novel, they will find themselves tapped into that place where they suffered something, whether it was a health issue or financial or, or a loss of someone that they loved. And um, they will they will realize that this broken world, like one out of one of us is going to face death at some point. But there's hope when you have faith in Christ. There's hope there. And uh, as Brady struggles and wars against it, it's really going to be only the love of this girl that he knew so many years ago that helps him to understand that in the midst of the turmoil that is earth, there's a rescue rope that comes down, and that's what that's Jesus. And that's what you can grab onto to have hope and understanding as you get through it. I wanted you to share with me what you experienced when you actually visited that site in Oklahoma City. Well, I was, I was struck immediately by a profound sense of sort of, um, I mean, almost like a reverence, a holiness that there was, it was like revered ground that we were walking on and people were quiet. They didn't do, there wasn't a lot of talking going on. It's beautifully designed. So there's this enormous wall. It's made out of marble and it, it goes several stories high and there's one on one end of it and there's one on the other end of the memorial. And on the first end, engraved at the top in, in letters are numbers that are about five feet high. It says 901. And then at the other end of the memorial, the same kind of wall, and at the top it says 903. So 901 represents the minute before the bombing happened, and everything was wonderful and good. And this is how it is with life. Tragedy hits in just a minute. And 901 was that moment when everything was perfect. 902, of course, that's when the bomb went off. But 903 represents the very first minute of healing. And that is a beautiful way for us to look Mm. at it in our own lives as well, that when something tragic happens, as hard as those next minutes and hours and days and even years will be, that first minute afterwards is the first minute of healing. And it would be best for us if we embrace it that way. Karen Kingsbury here on The Intersection. You can find out more through her website at karenkingsbury.com. Next up, it's author Charles Martin. He discussed his latest work of fiction entitled Send Down the Rain. It offers a story of brokenness and redemption. Here now is Charles Martin. His heart is broken and he's sort of shattered. and He sort of walks around in pieces and yet he really does want to love people well. So what does that guy look like? What's his life look like? And how does, like what, what puts those broken pieces back together? That's Send Down the Rain. And this main character in your novel actually interacts with another main uh, another main character by the name of Allie, who has had some tragedy in her life. So talk about how these these two characters really interact with one another. Well, they've known each other a long time. They're childhood friends and sweethearts, but for reasons that you understand. I won't ruin it for you, but for reasons that you come <laughs> to understand in the book, they their life doesn't pan out the way they'd hoped. But love has a way of coming back around. So there are some circumstances that sort of throw them back together and they're forced to wrestle with the what happened. And that's the secret that he's been holding. It's the thing he's been protecting her from for a really long time. And when she realizes what he's carried and how long he's carried it, 
she really realizes how awesome he is and how much he loves her. So it was a beautiful, folks have said it's really probably my most layered story. And I think that's true. Oftentimes my novels will sort of have two endings or two places at which the reader will sort of take a deep breath and, you know, kind of realize that, I don't know, it's just like the, the place where you get the satisfaction of knowing. I think this novel probably has about six places where that happens. It's real, it was real satisfying for me as a writer. I'm not quite sure how I got to the place where I set up all that tension. Sometimes I, I, look, I look back and I kind of wonder, now how did I do that? But um, it's a satisfying ending, and I love, I love hearing people's reaction to sort of just the way the ending pans out, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. What are you really wanting to communicate through this this relationship and the secret that this person is carrying around with him? What what does that say about us? What does it say about the human condition and really essentially about our walk and our relationship with God? I love crafting characters that you know reflect the the effect that love have has on them and how it you know, how the Lord can take broken pieces and put them all back together. Um, the movie didn't show what I had hoped. It didn't pick up the theme that I had hoped. So we're praying for folks that will come along and take my books and maybe stick with the themes a little closer. But I love watching and showing characters who, and this is true all the way back to The Dead Don't Dance, which is my first novel. Send Down the Rain is my 13th. I love walking the process with characters who go from broken to not. And what does that look like? To me, it mirrors life. I spend a good bit of time in Scripture. That doesn't mean I always do what it says, but it is a book that I love the most, and I do read it a good bit. And so somewhere along with writing this novel, I'm in with, you know, I'm reading the words of Jesus at the Last Supper and the Passover dinner, and it says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And then two chapters later in John 15, he says it again, just to make sure they're paying attention. But I don't think the disciples really knew what it meant until they're standing there probably 24 hours later, staring at his limp and bloodless body on the cross, realizing that now the love of God kind of goes beyond mercy and it involves sacrifice. And being able to show that in a character like Joseph was really cool because Joseph I got an email the other day from somebody who was angry at me because I had, for Joseph, because I had painted a character that had gone to war and done some of the ugly things in war. And yet when I look at the character of Joseph, he may be the most Christ-like character I've ever painted. A close second might be Mama Ella in a book I, I wrote called <laughs> Wrapped in Rain. But Joseph to me is a magnificent character who sacrifices basically himself for those that he loves. And he does it not only once, but kind of over a lifetime. I just thought that was important to write about. Charles Martin here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website charlesmartinbooks.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast with Janet Holm McHenry, the author of the book, The Complete Guide to the Prayers of Jesus, What Jesus Prayed and How It Can Change Your Life Today. In our conversation, she discussed the prayer life of Jesus and how his example can inspire us. From that conversation, this is Janet McHenry. He had to pray. He had to be with his father. And to me, this was um, reminiscent even of um, as a young boy when his parents were looking for him. 
you know, and they found him three days later, he was missing. They found him back at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and Mary questions him, you know, why, why did you do this? And he said, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? You see, Jesus, he had to be in his father's house, you know, in a figurative way, but he also had to be, he had to be off for prayer. He had to, um, spend time with him. And, um, he taught us in various kinds of ways that, that prayer is simple, that uh, it need not be a formal kind of language, that we can pray for everyday uh, kinds of needs that we have, and that we can go to Him in times of trouble as well. Uh, we don't want to pray uh, in such a way as to impress others. God doesn't need to be impressed. He knows who we are. And so we can pray in such a way that it's personal and private and, and meaningful to us. What do you see as some of the things for which Jesus himself prayed? Uh, we we see from his prayers that um, he prayed praise praise prayers. He prayed prayers of thanksgiving. Um, he prayed a lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prayed all kinds of prayers. But the one big chunk of prayer that we have of his is in John 17. And it's in three different sections. So I break that down into three sort of separate prayers. For, where first he's praying for himself, that he'll be glorified as, as the Father is glorified. He, he prays then for his disciples, you know, that they'll have love for one another, that they'll be one with one another as he and the Father are one. And then he prays for, and this is what strikes me so significantly, he prays for those who will believe. So in other words, he prayed for you, Bob. He prayed for mm. me. He wow. prayed for those who would come to the faith. And um, that, to me, is probably the, the the most important passage to me personally in the Bible, to just see the way that, that he prayed. Um, I think it's also very significant that um, after he entered Jerusalem for the last time, he enters on a donkey. You know, the people put palm branches down. And they're crying Hosanna and so forth. And the disciples are really confused, I think. And so he says, you know, a kernel of wheat has to be broken. And, and he's referring to his own future death. And he says, so what, wh- how shall I pray? Save me? Save me? He says, no, Father, for this hour I have come. This was for your good pleasure and to be, um, be glorified. You know, just, Father, glorify your name. And so I think that is a really important prayer for us as Christians, that we pray that our lives will glorify him. Mm. And something else comes to mind. I do want to circle back to John 17 in the context of intercessory prayer that Jesus demonstrated for us. And I wanted to ask you about, there's a, a very familiar line in Scripture. It's Jesus praying in the garden, and he called on his Father and said, Not my will, but yours be done. What's the significance right. of that passage as you see it? Um, I call that uh, the dichotomous prayer. You know, he says, um, you know, he, he says, Father, take this cup from me. And then he twists that around. It, it's like a two-sided coin kind of a prayer where he prays his best human desire, and then he flips it 
like at the other side of the coin and says, not my will, but yours be done. I think that's probably the best human kind of prayer that we can offer is that, Lord, I would, I really need this. I really, I would want this in my life um, or help me with this so desperately. But, you know, I submit myself to your will for my life. And uh, I love that prayer. Mm. Um, I think it's the best kind of prayer that we can possibly offer. Janet McHenry here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website, JanetMcHenry.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through the website, MeetingHouseOnline.info. When you visit that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more about it by going to faithradio.org. Also, when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Kristen Welch is author of the book, Raising World Changers in a Changing World, How One Family Discovered the Beauty of Sacrifice and the Joy of Giving. She is the founder of Mercy House Global, and in our recent discussion, she talked about the concept of a missions-minded family. Here now is Kristen Welch. Part of that journey of just raising kids has really ignited this passion to be intentional and to not let the days and years fly by because they do. And and so just trying to slow it down and really focus on our purpose here on this earth and what God wants us to do. I, I believe that God gives each of our families a mission hmm. to accomplish. And I think if we if we don't acknowledge that, it, it can pass us by. And so um, when we became, my husband and I became parents, we didn't really set out to raise world changers, but when we began teaching our kids to put others first and to be kind and to love God and, and love others, that's exactly what we realized we were doing. We were teaching them to live um, upstream and countercultural and to, to um, find joy and purpose in giving their lives away instead of keeping everything for themselves. And so it's been an incredible journey. It's been hard and good. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, we're just getting started. And I wanted you to elaborate just a bit when you talk about really imparting or implanting that sense of purpose or mission in the hearts of your kids. What are some ways that you actually cultivated that? Well, I think there's this um, misconception in our culture that um, we um, we really want to focus on our kids. You know, I mean, we we tend to have child-centered homes in our culture, and I don't think we do it on purpose. We have this natural tendency and and really desire to protect and provide for our children. And it very, it's a slippery slope because wants and needs turn into demands. And before we realize it, we are sometimes on this road of entitling our kids. And that is our personal story that we, um, 
we have done our best, but in doing our best, we realized that we were part of the problem. We were entitling our kids and giving them too much, too fast, too soon, and then they just demanded it. And so when we really began to try to pull back and um, make our home a Jesus-centered home, well, first of all, it was very difficult. There wasn't a big um, celebration over that. You know, it's hard to try to change a ship. But once we decided to do that, we realized that some of the discontentment and lack of joy in our home, um, we began discovering when we threw our doors open and began sharing what we have. And I think that that's really the key. Um, as I see my kids grow and get older and they're making all of these hard choices about college and leaving home and what they want to do when they grow up, um, one of the passions that we've tried to instill in them is that they're they're unique. I mean, God created all of us with um, specific individual gifts and desires, and we have um, the world before us, but the gifts that he's given us aren't meant for us to keep to ourselves, whether it's time or talent or resources, whatever he's given us, it's meant for us to share with others. And so being able to teach our kids that, that this unique passion that my son has for music and archery and my daughter for art, you know, those are gifts that God has given them, talents. If they keep them to themselves, then something is missing. But when they offer that to God and lay it on an altar, then he takes it and does something with it. And one of those things is he gives us purpose and and joy. And I I love the story of the young boy in the Bible who shared his lunch, you know, his fish and loaves. It wasn't much, but it was all he had. And it was something that he could share. And when he gave it to Jesus, he multiplied it and used it for his glory. And I think that's the message of this book that, um, we have a culture of kids and even adults who aren't satisfied and we're consumed with trying to fill this void. And our family has discovered that when we share what we've been given, we don't have less, we have more. Kristen Welch here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website wearethatfamily.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Michael Berry, Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. He talked with me recently about the case of a co-valedictorian at a high school in Illinois who was told by school officials shortly before he was set to deliver his valedictory message that religious content had to be omitted. Here now is Michael Berry. Sam Blackledge uh, worked very hard to become the valedictorian of his graduating class. He actually graduated with a perfect 4.0 uh, grade point average. Uh, but Sam, as a devout Christian, uh, uh, attributes his success and his accomplishments to more than just his own hard work. Uh, in his own words, he said, you know, really that it's his, it's his faith in, in God and his relationship uh, that with God that really was the reason he got a 4.0. And uh, he wanted to be sure that he shared that with his with his classmates upon graduation. You know that um, uh, the importance of working hard, but also the importance of of, of faith, uh, and that that was part of what he attributed to his own success. Unfortunately, the administrators there at West Prairie High School, uh, which is like you know it's probably smack in the middle between Chicago and St. Louis and in like the cornfields of Illinois. Um, 
you know, not not the kind of place that would immediately come to mind as, as kind of engaging in, in this kind of religious uh, hostility and censorship. But nevertheless, uh, that that's where these cases happen these days. You know, it's kind of in the the you know the breadbasket of America, and they refuse to let him mention his faith at all uh, in his graduation ceremony. Basically, telling him, look, uh, as long as you you know basically cut out and remove any references to your faith or to God or anything like that or to religion, then we'll, we'll let you give this speech. And, um, you know, and, and this happened like minutes before the graduation ceremony, really kind of not leaving him with any opportunity or, or, or options to, to do anything different. Uh, and they told him, as long as he removed the words, you know, God or Christ or references, that, that uh, the other stuff they wanted to talk about was fine. Uh, and they said that the reason they had to do this was they were concerned that somebody in the audience hearing Sam uh, give his valedictory address would think that the school was, was uh, establishing religion, right? You know, of course, the old yep. you know, wall separation that they always want to invoke. And that's just a, that's a terrible choice. Well, it's really no choice at all, right? It's basically saying yeah. you, you don't get you don't get to speak um, if you, you you know if you're going to invoke religion. And here's the thing: so that violates uh, Supreme Court case law. It violates the Constitution clearly, right? The First Amendment, free exercise, um, but it also violates uh, cases that the Supreme Court has handed down. Famously, the Supreme Court said. Uh, that you know, school uh, school children do not shed their constitutional rights upon entering the schoolhouse gates, and that goes from the first bell of the morning, you know, on the very first day of class, all the way through to graduation. Uh, not only that, but the Department of Education has also issued guidelines and guidance on how schools, public schools in this country, are supposed to handle these types of situations. And they say, look, when a student, this is what what our own federal government said. Uh, in their Department of Education guidelines, and they said, "Look, when when a school, um, when when a graduation speaker is selected on what we would call in the, legally is is called objectively neutral criteria, right? So if they're they're selected because they have the highest GPA uh, or something like that, then that's objectively neutral criteria, um, and the school cannot thereafter." Uh, you know, control or censor the content of their expression, because once the student speaker is chosen and selected, the speech is the it belongs to the speaker. It doesn't mm-hmm. belong to the school. And if the school does have any concerns that people in the audience might think that what the student is saying is actually, uh, uh, you know, school speech or government speech, then the school has a very simple kind of you know get out of jail free card, if you will. You just offer a disclaimer, a very simple disclaimer that we've all probably heard a thousand times in our lives, which is um, you know, the words expressed are yeah. those of the speaker and, 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 and his words alone and, and should not be attributed to the school. And that's it. It's as simple as that. That's all you have to do. And unfortunately, uh, West Virginia High School did not do that here. So they didn't follow Supreme Court precedent. They didn't follow the Department of Education guidelines. They instead took the draconian measure, of basically, as we as we just discussed, and said, "You either remove all religious references, or you don't get to speak." Michael Berry here on the intersection. Learn more through the website firstliberty.org. Well, Al Parada is managing editor of the Stream website. He's teamed up with Stream colleague John Zmirak to write the politically incorrect guide to immigration. 
He talked with me recently about some of the principles that are laid out in the book and discussed the Christian concept of welcoming. Here now from that conversation is Al Parada. There's a lot of disinformation, and 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 we, uh, we John and I, wanted to take a, a clear look at things, both from the historical point of view and the, the current debate, <clears throat> and come up with and come up with solutions to deal with deal with what we're facing with now. And I mean, we need to understand. Like an early part of the book, we actually asked the question, what does it mean to be an American? What do Americans think it means to be a citizen and an American? So you need to go back to the, fundament- the fundamentals before you can really deal with the issue. But we did want to go through the history because the history teaches us a lot about the things that work and the things that don't. Like the big example to me is in the 1920s, there was a restrict after having millions and millions of people come into the country, a nice big wave of immigration that we we put a restrictions on it. Now some of the restrictions were were based on uh, race and ethnicity, and that is horrible. But what we learned from that is by taking that break for uh, 20 years, we assimilated those people. Those people that were here grew as Americans, and what did they do? They gave birth to the great generation, the greatest generation. So we know that that as opposed to something that sounds like. A, a, um, a phobia, like we're afraid of immigration. No, we know that if we slow things down to catch our breath from the, all the illegals and, and legal immigrants that have come into the country, we can get them into the system if we sl- if we stop the pipe from pump, pumping more more people in or slow down the pump. We can do it. We've done it, and we've ended up, like I said, with the greatest generation. So. Our, ultimately, our, our, the message of the book is a positive message because it's easy to look and go, oh, this is a mess. You've got 20 million, 20 million illegal immigrants in the country. You're, you're costing, what, $115 billion a year for this alone. It's a mess, and it's a political fight, and everybody's angry and shouting. It doesn't need to be that way. It, there, is, there is a way through that works for everybody, and that's what we really try to stress in the book. The Bible teaches us to be welcoming people within our communities. Comment on that with respect to the immigration issue, because I think it's very important for people of faith to understand. Well, uh, it's interesting because, according to one scholar, the the word that is used for stranger that is used a lot in the immigration debate is actually not the word used for foreigner in the Hebrew. It's It's a word that has a little bit more of a technical meaning of somebody who's been who's been granted a right. To be, to be there. So there's a little bit of a distortion even from the biblical sense. But again, what is welcome? You know, we do welcome people. You know, we we want we want to be respectful people. We don't want anybody lying in the street. You think of, you go back to the 1930s before there was welfare programs and all during the depression. Who was who was on the street? Who was saving the Mexican immigrants in the streets of Los Angeles? Was it the government? Was it the city of Los Angeles? Was it the state of California? No. That was um, um, Amy Sipple McPherson in her Angeles Temple. They saved tens of thousands of lives, if you, if you hear, read the stories, because they, they showed compassion. They had a commissary, a food kitchen. That's compassion. But it's also compassion to have a system that doesn't encourage peop, you know, young, you know, people to come here illegally and get molested and raped along the way. Or be, or, or be victimized by coyotes or get here and be um, victimized by, by illegal gang members. That's not compassion. You know, so like I say it is an issue, but, we, but 
we do need to look at it from a clear-eyed point of view and, and not, not in a fantastical, oh, wouldn't it be nice if? No, we have to deal with the realities on the ground. And that's where our compassion comes in. Al Parada here on The Intersection. The stream website is thestream.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's businessman and consultant Bob Hassan, co-author of the book, The Business of Honor, Restoring the Heart of Business. He discussed aspects of honor and sound principles that are consistent with faith in God that can be integrated into business and life. Here now is Bob Hassan. Modeling is demonstrating the behavior that you expect from people. It also means to me paying attention to the people that we're promoting in leadership and making sure that they are models of what the culture of our organization is. When I was younger um, and out in the field painting, I was on my hands and knees sanding right along with everyone else. And that behavior that I modeled uh, was a work ethic. Now that I'm older, um, I'm modeling character and culture down through the organization and also to the organizations that I consult with. Empowering, um, to me, means giving people freedom and responsibility. And, you know, there's, there's a balance here. Sometimes there's not enough accountability um, or other times uh, there's, there's just there's not enough freedom. So... It's a delicate blend to empower people to be able to get their job done without going down a rabbit trail and not having someone to ask questions to, and uh, micromanaging. And protecting, um, I, to me, it means that, you know, that I am taking the lead with feedback. I... I take feedback well, and I've worked really hard on allowing people to give me feedback. Both in my personal life, I have a small circle of friends that uh, we are able to speak into each other's lives. And then in my business, I I have uh, men that have worked with me for over 20 years, one almost 35 years. And so uh, I want to be confrontable. I want to be... Uh, accountable, and uh, that comes back to modeling. I where where um, if if I'm if I'm modeling that behavior, then everyone in the organization eventually <laughs> will will get used to um, feedback and accountability. Well, there's that passage in Proverbs that talks about guarding your heart. Obviously, accountability transparency. These are really areas that can be, it seems like, very compatible with that. Anything else that you would want to add with respect to the the concept as a leader of guarding your heart? Well, Philippians 2.4 says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but look out to the interests of others. And that is one of the ways that I guard my heart, that I am I am looking out to the interests of others, that an honoring leader would look out in any organization, whether you're a, whether you're a manager, a team leader, on the executive staff, in the C-suites, um, a lead pastor, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter. If we're looking out to the interests of others, um, 
that's going to give us the ability, give people the ability to feel um, safe around us. And when our people's hearts feel safe, uh, you know, in in any environment, then you know, it's it's my contention that uh, output, productivity, and uh, culture is is raised in any organization. Bob Hassan here on the intersection. You can find out more by going to the website businessofhonor.com. Well, that just about does it for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit that homepage, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app, Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also through that website, you can access the Meeting House homepage. Just go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.